This is Pastor Rick Bino at Hokesson Baptist Church, and you are listening to A Crisis of Disobedience, the fourth message of our Jesus of Suburbia sermon series. Good morning. We're going to uh, have our teaching today in two parts, separated by another short time of worship. And as I was talking through this with the worship team, one of them asked which part was the good part. Hopefully they'll both be good parts. I want to begin by reading our passage that we'll be focusing on in this first part from the book of Amos. So if you have your scriptures, I encourage you, if you would, to turn with me to Amos chapter 5. And we'll be reading verses 4 through 24 of Amos chapter 5. During the course of our Jesus of Suburbia series, we've been taking our teachings from the book of Amos, as well as from the teachings of Jesus. In this first part, we'll focus on Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkness day, I'm sorry, and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you will have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. They will be wailing in all of the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. They will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, 
only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. During the course of this series, we've been exploring how to live rightly for Jesus in the midst of suburbia, in the midst of the pressures and the, the conditions set upon us by suburbia, the pressures of consumerism, of achievement, of self-preservation, and of comfort. And these are all near and dear to the heart of suburbia, but we've been discovering that much of what it means to live by the terms and conditions of the gospel fly in the face of these terms and conditions of suburbia. We've already talked about a more detailed exploration of the accumulation of material goods. We've talked about a, a lives oriented around ease. And throughout each of these teachings, I've touched on the focus that we're going to have today. And the focus for today, as you probably discovered from our passage that we just read from Amos, is what are God's expectations and hopes for us on the topic of justice and care for the poor. Now this idea of justice and, and care for the poor, on the, one, on the one hand, it's really easy to talk about. Because if, if I were to say to you, should we care for the poor and needy, all of you would say, well, of course. I doubt any of you would say, well, no. Starving children, we shouldn't care about them. The poor and oppressed in Wilmington, eh, not our problem. Most of you, at least, we would verbally affirm that this is part of the, our mission as Christians to be looking after and caring for the poor and the oppressed. So there's a sense that we're very receptive to hearing words and encouragement for caring for the poor. But on the other hand, it's very, very difficult for us because we live in suburbia. And suburbia is designed to insulate you from the poor. Your neighborhood has been built to protect you from having to see and come across the poor and the hurting. None of you that I know of are going to go to your Hocassin suburban neighborhood and have a homeless person sitting on your driveway. And that's not by accident. That is by design. Suburbia is designed to separate us and protect us and insulate us from much of the poverty that's in our world. And so even though we as Christians, we affirm that we want to care for people in these situations, we live in places that tell us we don't have to. And so we're sort of pulled in two different directions. But there's something brewing in the hearts of many in this church. And for many of you, this sermon is something you've been waiting for. There's something brewing in many of us that say an insulated Christianity is an empty Christianity. There's something in you that compels you to see the needs of others and respond to them. 
There's something brewing in our church. And it's gaining momentum not just in our church, but in evangelical Christianity. And it's a passion for justice. And I don't want to say that this is a, a, uh, something new, historically, because that just sort of shows our own historical arrogance. It's not the birth of something. This idea of justice and pursuing justice is not a birth of something, but it's the rebirth of something that's been part of the heartbeat of God's people for, better, for, for more or for less from, for the thousands of years. For the heart of God has always been sympathetic to the poor as long as there's been poor to be sympathetic for. And so what's happening, I hope, is that we rediscover this crucial part of our faith and that it will gain a greater spotlight in our lives as American suburban Christians. And so this morning I want to talk from these two passages, Amos and later from Luke, about why is it that justice falls by the wayside of our faith? Why is it that even though we read so much about justice in Scripture, that it doesn't have a greater role in our everyday Christian lives? Why does it slip so easily to the back burner? And why does it sometimes slip off the stove altogether? And hopefully along the way we'll learn some correctives and some warnings to change this. So I want us to look at two different points from Amos about why we fail to keep justice as a priority. And the first reason is this. We do not see ourselves or we fail to see ourselves as the powerful. When we read scriptures like Amos and we see him condemn the powerful, we go, yeah, the powerful. They ought to get their act together. Without realizing that we, we are the powerful. Before we get into that, let me talk about justice for a second. Because when I say the word justice, we sometimes limit that term to a a definition that's more limited than Scripture means. When we hear justice in the U.S., we often think of stuff like courtrooms and jails and crime and punishment and police. We hear justice, or we hear the phrase, justice is served, and we think of, of someone getting the punishment they deserve. We have Texas justice. It's a syndicated TV program where some southern judge presides over small claims doling out Texas justice. So it brings to our minds something related to jurisprudence. And this aspect of justice, though it's not absent from the Bible, certainly, it's even in this Amos passage, but we find that justice, justice in the courts, it overflows from a greater understanding of the concept of justice. One writer contends that when Amos, in Amos 5.24, when he declares, let justice roll down like a mighty stream, he does not say, he does not mean, let police forces expand, let's get more courtrooms set up, let prisons proliferate. You see, in the Bible, justice has less to do with the conviction of the guilty and more to do with the care of the innocent and the oppressed. So when you see justice in Scripture, don't just think courtrooms and crimes and police, but think care for the oppressed and care for the poor. So when Amos says you do not pursue justice, 
It means you're not caring for the poor. You're not looking out for the innocent. You're not protecting those who need to be protected. And this idea is seen all throughout Scripture. There's sort of an idiom in the Hebrew language to describe the poor and oppressed. It's a, it's a triplicate image. And the oppressed are summarized as the widows, the orphans, and the aliens. Frequently throughout Scripture, God has special concern for widows, orphans, and aliens. Aliens, of course, meaning people who don't live in their own land. Not the sci-fi channel. But notice what these three have in common. Aliens, orphans, and widows. They're all people who are vulnerable and have suffered loss. Widows lose their husbands, and in that society, it often meant they lost their income and their future prospects. Orphans lost their parents and therefore are vulnerable and need society's care. Aliens or immigrants have lost their land, their homes, their rootedness, and they need society to care for people to care. And so God calls for us to be alert and awake to see those who are suffering, those who are vulnerable, and those who have loss. And so we don't just leave justice in the hands of the police or the jails or the court system, but God goes beyond that to seek out and protect the innocent and the poor and the oppressed. But the scary thing is that the testimony of Scripture, particularly of Amos, it puts that responsibility on those who have power. Those of us who have social power, economic power, and status power. If you have power, this passage is talking to you. And God condemns the powerful in multiple places in this passage, including verse 11, where it says that in your power you trample the poor. You gain your power. And you build your mansions. But what about the poor? He goes on in verse 12 to say, You oppress the righteous, you take bribes, and you deprive the poor justice. The powerful have so greatly perverted justice that even the court systems have fallen apart. Now I wonder if I have to argue that you are the powerful. If you have a high school education, if you had running water this morning, if you drove anything here to church, then you are among the most powerful and the most wealthy of all the world. Let me give you this little statistical way of looking at it. Let's imagine the whole world was divided into groups of 100 people, which is about what we have here. So let's say the whole world was divided into groups of 100, just like this one. But the idea of dividing this 100 was to sort of give an even statistical analysis of the world based on the groups of 100. So if this was a group of 100 people from all over the world trying to statistically represent the wealth and the power in the world, of the 100 of us, only six of you would possess 60% of the world's wealth. So six of the 100 would have 60% of the world's wealth, and the other 94 would share the last 40% amongst themselves. And all six would be from the U.S. 
So if you were in a group of 100 people, you would be one of the six wealthiest people in, the, in, your, you would, in your group. But it goes beyond that. Of those six, only one would have a college education. And only one would have a computer. Which means if you have a college education or if you have a computer, you would be the wealthiest and the most educated person in your group of 100. Which is likely to mean that if we were divided up, none of us would be in the same group. Because each single one of us represents the most educated and the most powerful and the most wealthy person in the group of 100 people that you're with. Are you following me? You are the powerful. You are the wealthy. You are the rich. Now, we don't feel like it all the time, right? You want to raise your budget up at me and go, listen, pal, you haven't seen my budget. But that's because we're comparing ourselves to suburbia and to people richer than us, right? We look at somebody who has the better job and the better house and the better suburban neighborhood. We look at Bill Gates and these people that have millions and millions and billions of dollars and we say, well, I'm not that rich. I'm not that powerful. But when you look at it in the scope of the world, we find out that if we were divided up into groups of 100, each one of us would be the most powerful person and the richest person in our group. And so when Amos tells us, you as the powerful have responsibility for the weak, We are not able to say that does not mean me. It absolutely means us. Without a doubt, without compromise, without argument. We are the ones being spoken to when Scripture says, hey, the powerful of the nation, the powerful of society, you need to be looking after the weak. One writer calls the failure of American Christians in suburbia to care for the weak a crisis of disobedience in American Christianity. Let's look at a second issue from Amos that's equally as disturbing. So if you're not disturbed yet, you're about to be. And the second is that we wrongly disconnect justice from worship. This passage, this is the Bible we're talking about, right? We just read the Bible. At the beginning of this passage and at the end of this passage, God says the same thing two different times. He says, people... Stop going to church, which is sort of unusual to hear in the Bible. Now, of course, in Israelite time, they didn't have church, so to speak, but they had their places of worship. And you know how this passage starts? He says three times, don't go to your places of worship. Don't go to Bethel, a place of worship. Don't go, don't go over there to Gilgal, another place of worship. Don't go to Beersheba. He says, don't bother going to your places of worship. And the reason is in verse 7. Because you turn justice into bitterness and righteousness, you cast righteousness to the ground. Literally in Hebrew, it's you flip justice upside down, you flip righteousness upside down, you're all backwards. You come to church, you come and worship, but where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? Where's your care for the poor? Look at verse 21. God says, I hate. In case that wasn't powerful enough, he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. 
gets real personal at 23, especially to a suburban church like ours. He says, enough with the singing. Enough with your songs. Put away your harps or your guitars or your pianos or your organs. Put it away. I've had enough of it. Why? Verse 24. Let justice roll on like a river, like a never-ending stream. God is saying that there will certainly be times where we worship. There's going to be times where we sing. Singing is not a bad thing. Certainly coming to God is not a bad thing. But God is compelling us to understand that this worship, these assemblies that we have together, are a snapshot or are a piece of a larger life of righteousness and of justice. Notice that justice is rolling on like a river, right? And it's a never-ending stream. It's always going. It's always living. It's always a part of us. We come together once in a while, right? Sunday mornings we come together, we worship, we sing, we pray, we're together. But our righteousness doesn't just happen when we're together. And our call to care for the poor doesn't just happen when we're together. It's a lifestyle that we need to adopt, a lifestyle of pursuing and caring and living righteous lives and looking out for those with less. I don't know how you're feeling right now, but that's a harsh and difficult analysis from God of his worship communities, isn't it? And it makes me nervous. I'm the pastor. And it makes me nervous. And it makes me want to pray and focus and repent and think about would God look at me and say, Rick, enough worrying about all the little things you worry about when it comes to church. And start pursuing caring for the weak. Caring for the poor. When God evaluates his worship community, it doesn't seem like he's concerned very much about whether or not we sing praise songs or use a piano or have a coffee time or have enough variety of classes in our Sunday school. Looks like God says, are the people of Hokessen Baptist Church living righteous lives as the powerful in their society? Ask that question. Are the people of Hokessen Baptist Church living righteous lives as the powerful in of their society. And if we are, well then all these other things come to God as a beautiful act of worship. Our songs, our prayers, our gatherings, our scripture readings, all of that comes to God as a fragrant offering if it comes out of lives of righteousness, out of lives that look to care for the downtrodden. If we ignore this message, as a, com- as a community, then we put ourselves at risk at having God say to us the same thing he said to Israel, I can't stand your assemblies. It's a risk that we take if we're not living righteous lives between Sundays. And part of that righteousness has, has to be seeking out justice for the weak and looking after those in our society who are not powerful as we are.
Well, I know what some of you are probably thinking. This has been a bit of a downer. Kind of a bummer of a Sunday. But as we talk about the next passage, I want us to continue to think about this idea of justice, but to move into a place of of forward thinking and of motivation and of understanding the greater things that God can do through us. So turn with me to Luke 10. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a familiar parable that Jesus spoke. I'm just going to comment on it for a few minutes as we end our service today. So turn with me to Luke 10. We'll start in verse 25, and we'll go to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he said to Jesus, or asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus is approached in this passage by what's called a lawyer or an expert in the law. When we hear that word in this context, we don't want to think of a courtroom lawyer. We rather want to think of a lawyer or a student of the scriptural law, something more akin to a theologian or a seminary student who wanted to to debate and talk about theological issues. And it's clear from the very beginning his motivation, it says he wanted to test Jesus. And he tries to test him with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it appears from the nature of his question and his observation of Jesus that the hope was that Jesus would somehow in his answer lower the value of the law because Jesus was hanging out with all these law-breaking people. He was hanging out with the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, people that the law despised. So it seemed like maybe, perhaps, Jesus did not have a very high opinion of the Jewish law. So the lawyer thought, well, if I can get him to sort of express this, then I can trap him into denying his Jewish faith and his Jewish heritage. And so what he's expecting Jesus to say, I think, is something like, 
Well, to inherit eternal life, it doesn't, you, know, it, you just have to be sincere. You don't have to worry about the law. Well, the law is old news. It doesn't really apply anymore. He's hoping Jesus lowers the value of the law, and then he's got him trapped. But Jesus answers in a very typical rabbinical way with a question. Okay, so you see the, the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you read it? I don't know. What do you think? The lawyer says, oh, well, let me tell you. Now, there were some 700 laws, some written in Scripture. A lot of them had been developed by the Pharisees and the scribes and these seminary-type people, had, had developed all these laws. So when, when, when Jesus says, well, tell me what you think is the law is, what do, you, what do you think I have to do to inherit eternal life? He can't possibly, no, none of them could possibly list all of the rules, so they had come up with sort of a standard way of summarizing the rules. And that the standard way was love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That was sort of the umbrella way of sort of encapsulating all these laws. Well, surprise, surprise, the, 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 the uh, student or the, the law expert was right. And Jesus said, great job. Go and do that. Well, suddenly the lawyer found himself in the trap. Wait a minute. I can't. He knew. I mean, he wasn't stupid. He knew that he couldn't perfectly love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. And so the lawyer panics. And he says he tries to justify himself, right? He's he's backed into a corner. And so what he does is he asks the famous question, And who is my neighbor? Because you see, the lawyer asked, what must I do to be saved? You see, the lawyer had a very works-based oriented way of pleasing God. Give me a list of what I need to do and who I need to do it for, and then I can check it off, and then I'll know I'm saved. Then I know I'm in. Then I know I'm good. And then Jesus affirms for him that there is a list, but it's impossible for him to accomplish. Love everybody, like yourself, and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what the lawyer wants to do is he wants to minimize his responsibility. Right? He wants to say, well, wait a minute. Who is my neighbor? And I think we find ourselves doing the same. We attempt to minimize our responsibility. We want to say, well, after what I said earlier, right, about justice for the poor, you want to say, we want to ask, well, who is it? Who is it that we're supposed to care for? And the answer is, everybody. And we go, well, that's going to be kind of tricky, isn't it? How do we do that? Certainly, suburbia doesn't help us any. Fences, garages, angled lots, Hedges, porches moving from the front of the house to the back, these are not neighborly things, are they? You think about it, your neighborhood is not actually built to be terribly neighborly. You're fortunate if you have a new neighborhood that has a playground in it. Old neighborhoods used to all have playgrounds. You know where the playground's out now? Everybody's own backyard has a playground. 
So you don't go to the neighborhood playground, you go to the one in your own backyard. Your, your neighborhood probably is not built to be neighborly. So suburbia isn't helping us any with being a neighbor. And so we want to limit. Well, who is it that we're supposed to be neighborly to? Well, in Jesus and his parable, he explodes it. Instead of limiting it, he explodes it. He says, you know that Samaritan that you hate so much, the worst enemy you can think of, the most horrible person culturally and religiously that you Jews hate? Yeah, well, that's your neighbor. To which the man, I'm sure, rubbed his face like this. And then I'm sure the man was thinking, well, how much do I have to do for this person? Well, you look at the Samaritan. What did he do? He cared for this person, the trodden, the the victim, holistically, right? He cared for him financially, emotionally, physically, health-wise, medical. He even gave him transportation, right? Put him on his donkey. And it was long-term, wasn't it? He said to the innkeeper, here's some money but you take care of him, whatever needs he has, and I'll be back and I'll pay you the rest. So it wasn't even short term. So Jesus explodes the what or the how much of our care as well. You care for everyone as much as possible. And we go, how in the world do we do that? Well, I'll get to that in the next three minutes. And I want to get to it with our fourth point and our final point of the day, and that is we sometimes fail to do works of justice because we fail to understand the scope of restoration offered by the gospel. You know what the gospel is in suburban America? Jesus saved me. He died for my sins. That's American suburban gospel. But the gospel of the Bible is that Jesus came to restore and redeem all creation. Amen? Amen. He came to restore creation. When you walk and you touch and you care for the poor, you are living out the gospel. Why are you able to do that? How is it possible that we're able to do that? Because we spiritually are the undeserving poor that Jesus came for. And so we have experienced the restoration and the redemption and the grace of God in our lives. How do we find the power and the encouragement and the energy to care for the poor? We must seek it in the grace of the gospel that's within us. Because the motivation for doing it is going to fade quickly if you're just trying to be a nice person. It ain't going to fit into your daytimer if you just want to be a good guy or a nice lady. It's got to be powerfully motivated by the gospel within us. Now, throughout the life of the church, there's sort of been this pendulum swing with different denominations. Some denominations and some churches have been very, very focused on service and outreach, and they've, they've lost Christ. They've lost the gospel. And they've become a major, majorly a service organization. And then there's the other extreme of churches that, that have sort of forgotten about justice because they say the most important thing is to talk about Christ. You need to evangelize. If you go and you do works of service, but you don't speak of Christ, then you haven't done anything. 
And I think both of these extremes are incorrect. I think that evangelism, speaking of Christ, and justice, serving Christ, serving the poor for Christ, are hand in hand. They're both part of the gospel. The restoration aspect of the gospel. We communicate the gospel in both words and deeds. Tim Keller, he's a pastor of a church in New York City, an urban church that has lots of outreach ministries. And he makes this observation. When people see and experience the concrete, sacrificial love of Christians in serving the poor, these people will need to hear the gospel just to make sense of what it is you're doing. If you are that person in the neighborhood that walk around and encourage people, you're the one that speaks to your neighbor, you're the one that goes into the city and helps the poor, or you're sitting there and you're mentoring some kid in the city, and you're some rich white person from suburbia, and you're there every week caring for the city kid, somebody's going to look at you and say, what is wrong with you? What's going on with you? And you say, it's the gospel of Christ in me. It's the love of Christ in me. Well, how do we acknowledge the fact that God calls us to care for everyone in every way? Well, here's how it works. He's not calling you to care for everyone in every way. He's not calling you to care for everyone in every way. He's calling his people to care for everyone in every way. It's a community effort. So you aren't supposed to leave here feeling guilty. Man, I have to care for everyone in every way. No, 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 no. You care for who God brings to you in every way you can. You understand? And as each one of us does that, then the entire community begins to care for more and more and more and more and more people. And so, if all the church would embrace this vision of restoration, then is it, is, it, is it possible that everyone, everywhere, would be cared for? Greater things are still to come. Greater things are yet to be done. And so we as a church are going to encourage you to take a piece of this message and live it out. And we're going to do it through something called Day Laborers. There's a little tab in your bulletin. Day Laborers is simply an initiative for this. For the next 12 months, our church is going to partner with 12 different agencies for 12 different service projects that care for the poor. And we're going to ask you and invite you to get involved in at least one of these service projects over the next 12 months. And our hope is that it'll be greater than that. We're hoping and praying that maybe in six months we have to offer two a month because there's so many people that want to be involved. We already have our two first two arranged. We're going to, uh, in April, we're arranged to go to the Sunday Breakfast Mission. In May, we're doing a Habitat for Humanity project. Our church is sponsoring a day. Two projects are already set up for April and May. There'll be one for June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, and March of next year. Twelve months, twelve projects. We want you to get involved in one. And we want you to experience what it's like to be a part of caring for the poor. We have a lot of people that are excited about it. I want to introduce you to Josh and Christy. If they stand up for a second. 
When I met with Josh and Christy about a year ago and asked them about being, becoming members of their, our church, we talked all about stuff, and I said, guys, what would you love to do? And they said, we'd love to help the church connect in serving the poor. And I said, I'll keep that in mind. When day laborers came about, I called Josh and Christy. I said, would you like to help us oversee this program? And they said, absolutely. So Josh and Christy are our day laborers, thank you, are our day laborers overseers. And I wanted, you, I wanted you to see their faces because I know some of you have connections with agencies and places and, and services that we can be involved in that maybe we don't know about. So if you know of some place that we can serve the poor or a way that we can serve the poor, I encourage you to stop them and say, hey, maybe in October and September or something, we can be a part of this organization. Listen, today's sermon and today's talk was only, made, was only meant to uh, share scripture with you and to make us feel whatever compulsion we need to feel to serve God more righteously. It's not meant to make us feel guilty. It's not meant to feel like a bad Christian. And that's okay if you do, if you need to feel that way. But I want to end with this. The lawyer's greatest mistake in the Samaritan passage is he asked, what must I do to be saved? I don't care what you do for the poor. It ain't saving you. You are saved by the grace and mercy of God. And what you're doing for the poor is simply your response to the mercy and grace you've received. So don't feel guilty. Go serve the poor out of the appreciation for the way that God served you with mercy and grace.